So you should have two outlines, as always, in front of you. And the, the uh, purpose of the second outline is I just hope that I'm going to get to it someday. <laughs> so, uh, so we're still on the first outline uh, because it usually takes me a few weeks to get through these outlines. So the first one should say Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series on the top. They both say that. Uh, then it should say Rediscovering with the word Rethinking. Um, and I would throw in words like re-examine and restore or rebuild his pattern. So I just had a very good meeting with uh, uh, Grant over here, and we were talking a little bit about the current state of Christianity and the things that have come out of the uh, fundamentalist-modernist controversy that kind of shaped modern Protestant Christianity in America today. And... Uh, if you really kind of uh, go over the things we did the first couple weeks, what we tried to do under Roman numeral one, you know, we're not going to reread ex our theme verses are at the top there. We covered Roman numeral one the first two weeks. And what we tried to do, what Roman numeral one is called restoring biblical perspective. And what I'm trying to help you see is this. Um, at one time, America had one of the most Christianized cultures in the history of the world. At one time, Europe was actually called Christendom. Today, less than 4% of Europeans would claim to be Christians, and about half of those practice their Christianity in any significant way. In America, uh, Christianity permeated our laws, our constitution, in fact, the whole idea of a limited constitutional government comes out of the Protestant Reformation. That's beyond our scope of thinking for tonight and is based on very biblical thinking. It's based on the idea that man is innately sinful, that power corrupts, and that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and therefore we must limit the federal government in every way conceivable. <laughs> We've sort of lost that, that viewpoint over time. But one of the ways we li limit is by having a written constitution so we have a government of laws and not of men. And uh, f actually following the constitution sort of went out in the window, mostly in the 1950s, and, but there was a gradual process for it. But all of that is actually just a subset of a larger picture, and that is the Christianity of our culture has been ineffective in engaging the culture increasingly uh, since, uh, per, since the Great Awakening of the 1760s. Gradually, the Christianity of our culture has changed, and it's changed in such a way that it's not sufficient to, to, to hold up to the onslaughts against it. And so we looked at that from a variety of perspectives. We looked at Acts 17, where it basically claims that uh, Paul and Jason and the other guys involved in that chapter had turned the whole world upside down by declaring another kingdom, that the emperor worship of the Roman Empire, that statism was not true, and that there was another way to salvation and another king, Jesus Christ. And um, we looked at the fact that Jesus expected the church to be salt and light, and that salt stops corruption. Anytime you look at a culture, if the culture is morally declining, 
it's actually an indication that the Christianity in the culture is not sufficient. Hey, Stephen, I need a water bottle as well. I hope we have one. Um, that it's not sufficiently Christian to, uh, to hold the culture morally in check. Does that make sense? Um, so we, then we looked at the gates of Hades, uh, where Jesus said, I will build my church in the gates of Hades. And if you, do you, does anybody recall that we, we talked about where they went to, to, to do that? Does anyone remember where they went? And anybody but the usual suspects? Who remembers where they went? Yeah, and where was Caesarea Philippi? The place of the Jesus died? No. No, uh, he would have died outside of Jerusalem in the southern part of Judea. And, um, you said outside of Israel, northern Jerusalem? Yeah, so uh, northern Israel was called Galilee, the central part, Samaria, the southern part, Judea, and the very southern part, Idumea. In the, in the Gospels, if you kind of know the geography a little bit, it'll help you understand your Gospels better when you're reading them. Um, Jesus only took the disciples outside of Israel one time. He took them north to the base of a mountain at a place called Caesarea Philippi, uh, at, where Herod had built his temple. And he took them to a place called the Gates of Hades. So the scene of what he's doing there when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it is very important to understanding what he's doing. He's saying that the entire Old Testament, God's people were called to represent God's laws, his spirit, his ways. They were called to mediate the redemptive presence of God to the nations around them. And they had time and time and time again failed for various reasons to do that. Partly because they were influenced by the nations around them and had a compromised faith, much like we struggle with today. Uh, partly because they were prejudiced against the world around them, much like today we, have, we raise up little boys and little girls to be good little Christians and don't hang around the bad people. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the religion of Israel, predominantly the Zealots, especially in the Pharisees, but some degree the Sadducees and some degree the Herodians, they disliked the cultures around them and said, oh, we got to protect you from them. And, and instead of reaching out and changing the cultures around them. And Jesus is actually saying, I'm going to build a different kind of church, a different kind of called out people. The, the word church comes from the word ecclesia, and in the Old Testament, the Greek version called the Septuagint, whenever, uh, whenever you get, um, whenever it talks about Moses' congregation, uh, it's actually using the word ecclesia. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, it's two places. He uses the word ecclesia twice, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He's doing that on purpose. He's saying, Moses had a people. I'm going to build a new kind of people. And these people will actually storm the gates instead of be afraid of them. And they will actually liberate those behind the gates. Gates are for defense. You don't put up, you know, like people, uh, if you were, maybe there's someone wealthy enough that you grew up in a gated community. <laughs> Anybody wealthy enough that they grew up in a gated community? Um, like in a prison? 
<laughs> Fortunately, I've only visited those kind of gated communities, but uh, we've had a few. We've had a few members of those kind of gated communities in our church. Um, that's hilarious. Um, well, I went to those kind of gated communities <laughs> to liberate prisoners in a different sense. All right, so, so we looked at that kind of thing, and then we basically challenged us to be like the Bereans, be more noble-minded, like don't dismiss this stuff quickly, and don't just uh, treat it shallowly. Actually do some studying and study to see if these things are so. What we're really trying to do is a rethink or a re-examining of contemporary Christian culture to say how, how biblical really is it? And we're trying to then do a rebuild or reconstruct or restore a different kind of Christianity. That's the purpose of Rock Campus Fellowship and the church that sponsors at Grace Christian Fellowship. Then we got into, we started in on the idea that part of that rethinking process involves the idea that there's patterns in the scripture. So one of the things that came out of the fundamentalist modernist con controversy is those who said we follow the Bible applied the Bible to the doctrines of conversion or salvation in an increasingly reduced way, but they applied the Bible to very little else. So in other words, uh, one of the things that came out of, of evangelicalism is an ever increasingly reduced idea about what the church is supposed to be. And we're saying that there are patterns in the Bible of everything, not the least of which is what should be the church. And what the church's goals should be, its way of life as a community, the Lord, Lord what should be practiced on the Lord's Day, uh, what should be done in terms of discipleship. For example, a great example of that would be, uh, well, there's a couple of great examples, the Lord's Day. Um, increasingly, evangelicals became anti-liturgical, but the early church had creeds, scripture readings, communion, things like that every week. And they, that's demonstrable that that happened within the first few years after Christ's resurrection. Secondly, today, the, the idea of one-on-one -on -one discipleship, I, I ask most people that I'm meeting with, how often have you had a qualified Christian leader who meets with you at least once a week and gives you assignments of what to read and, and so forth and talks to you about your doubts to, to your sin struggles, to building Christian character, to what's the call of God on your life. To How often have you had somebody qualified be a spiritual mom or dad to you? It's clear that Jesus intended that to be the pattern of the church for all time. Yet today, only parachurch groups practice that. What, does anyone know what we mean by a parachurch versus a church group? Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, so a pair, without mentioning specific groups, parachurch groups tend to be uh, do evangelism and discipleship apart from the church. Sometimes they might have a church affiliation, but it's sort of loose, and you really find your church in the parachurch group, uh, when in fact in the New Testament, all outreaches were part of a church, and you're supposed to be discipled not only by an older, like if you're a, 
a young lady, an older young lady, or, or you know, you somebody should be discipling you. Um, if you're, uh, but you should also be discipled by a community of Christians. So it's not that, like, uh, for instance, I've been discipling Mr. Bradbury for the last few years, but on the other hand, you know, you two guys and and uh, John Weiss and Nathan Hager have been discipling Mr. Bradbury because it's a because it's a group of people that disciple one another. Like the church should be a discipling community where we all help disciple one another. All right? So most churches today are, you go on Sunday morning. The real spiritual people might go to Sunday night or Wednesday night. And you don't have that much involvement in the church outside of that. When in the New Testament, they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people, and, and doing these things from house, house to house. Acts 2.42 says they were devoted, which is a very strong word in the Greek. That means they were absolutely tenaciously committed that nothing was going to stop them from doing this. Uh, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And what that means is, guess what the apostles taught? They taught the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. They taught how to find Christ in the Old Testament. To be devoted to the apostles' teachings would mean to go to the Thursday night by RCF studies and learn how to find Christ in the Old Testament. Right? So um, what they taught, they started to write letters and, and gospels, the historical and biographical accounts of Jesus, that became the New Testament. So to be a devoted to the apostles' teaching would be a way of life where you study the Old Testament and the New Testament every time. Now, not to uh, don't say the name of your church. We're not against any Christians. But how many people here uh, grew up in a kind of Christianity where your study of the Old Testament was a little bit light? Most, most, the majority of people around this table, these tables, more than one table. But, um, and there's reasons for that. They have to do with the, the, the way the Old Testament is approached uh, versus the way the apostles approached the Old Testament. So again, Acts 2.42, they are devoted to, the, uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. How many people went to a church where you mostly saw the people once or twice a week and not like all the time? How many people went to a church where you really only saw them on Sundays? A few. So um, I went to a church uh, for that. Um, if you were really spiritual, you might go Sunday night or Wednesday night or something. But all fellowship all the time always happened on the church campus. I was involved in a church that in four years I was, uh, I was the, the assistant to the pastor on a lot of practical things. I was at his house once. Uh, there was a, a family in the church whose daughter graduated from high school and had a graduation party that I was at. And one couple had us over for dinner. In four years, I was at someone else in the, in the church's house three times. I, I never have a week now where I'm not at least at three or four people in our church's house during the week besides my own. Right? Not to mention all the time sitting around at uh, Panera Bread, Frisch's, and all those other spiritual capitals. <laughs> uh, and even Byron's, where he works, cafe, uh, lunch cafe. <laughs> so, 
Um, that was their way of life. So we say we're Bible-believing Christians, but the, we've divorced what we believe from what we practice or we live, and the New Testament Christians did not have a worldview that permitted that. Okay? So that's all the whole re rediscovering the pattern thing. We looked at the pattern of the tabernacle. And so we stopped uh, on the back page where it says Christ our pattern. I wanted to do a little bit more with that um, than we've done before because I'm trying to throw in some new things for those who've... who've uh, some of this is overlap from a couple different series we've done over the years. So some, some people who have been with us a lot of years have heard this uh, from a couple different angles. Uh, especially the part about Christ being our model or pattern. So I decided to throw in a couple verses that are different than our usual verse. So last, so we haven't made it all the way around. So let's actually, let's, let's start with Jeff Burks and go this way this week. If <laughs> um, we're reading. Jeff, read John 13, 13 through 15. Which is, uh, so we're, what's that? And then uh, while he's doing that, Bob, you get 1 Peter 2.21 ready. And uh, Jonathan, you get Mark 1.29 through 39 ready. Byron, you get Mark chapter 3.13 through 19 ready. And John Luke, you get Matthew 28.18 through 20 ready. Uh, and, and Macy, you get Mark 3.14 and Acts 4.13 together ready. Deanna, you get John 14, 12 ready, and Morgan, John 20, 21. Okay. And that, so we'll go just that far for now. So and we'll we're going to talk about each of these verses. So remember which verse was yours, and uh, let's look them up. Go ahead. So John 13, 13 through 15. And you know what? You could comment before you read, if you know it, on what's the context of when this is happening. Do you know it offhand? John Luke, you know it? It's at the Lord's Supper. Right? Who knows a little bit more about that? Like, what's the difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of the Lord's Supper and John's version of the Lord's Supper? Right, that's correct. And uh, John Luke, what is uh, since I knew you were on this a little bit, what is uh, what is G what is Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on as far as Jesus, what Jesus did at the Lord's Supper? So both cover the Lord's, all four cover the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, what's the term that that people uh, apply to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Bob Timer, you know that. Synoptic, and why? Where does that come from? Just review. I'm reviewing for everyone's sake. A lot of people know this. The same, right. And what's optic mean? Light or view. Yeah, uh, you know, like ophthalmologists, optometrists, op, uh, it's seeing something. So the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels because they view Jesus from a similar perspective and they, and they cover similar events and similar teachings <laughs> in the ministry of Jesus. John, on the other hand, waited till he'd read the other three before he wrote his. And he purposely is covering perspectives they left out. Right? Does everybody know that? Right? So that's the bigger backdrop. Like you'll get a lot more out of your reading of your Gospels if you know these kind of things. 
what, um, what some of the emphasis of Matthew are. Matthew is written to what group of people primarily? The Jews. Who said that? Okay. And what is he going after? Lena. Do you, uh, yeah, so he's using the Old Testament to help the Jews know a couple things. One is that they uh, missed their Messiah when he came. Two, that the Messiah was bringing a lawsuit like all the prophets had brought. Elijah, going forward, had brought, uh, called, the, the prophets in the Bible don't foretell the future like modern Christians think. The prophets in the Bible call people back to faithfulness to God's law and his covenant. So like your, uh, that's why like Hosea uses the, the metaphor of marriage and he says, you're supposed to be married purely to Yahweh and you're whoring around with other, with other gods, right? That's the whole point of Hosea. And uh, I'm calling you back to being a faithful wife to Yahweh. Right? So that's what the prophets do. And Jesus is standing on that foundation, often quoting from them all over the place, saying, I've had it with you, Israel. Time after time after time, I've sent one servant after another servant after another servant, you stoned one, you killed another, you wouldn't receive their message. Then you, generations later, build their tombs, saying we wouldn't have killed them if they... And, we, and you, by building their tombs, you bear witness that, that you would have done the same as your fathers. And now I am going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation that produces the fruits, and I'm going to send the Roman armies to destroy this temple and... Not one stone will be left, and, and this will all happen within a generation. That's the whole point of Matthew's gospel, right? Not only did you miss your Messiah, you missed your final opportunity. That's it. I'm pulling the plug. So Matthew has a genealogy that goes back through Abraham because Matthew is showing Jesus is king of the Jews. Luke is written by the only non-Hebrew writer of the New Testament, to the whole world to say Jesus is the King, Savior, and Lord of all the world, and his redemption has always been intended for all mankind, and he's always wanted a people for himself, and Israel was a foreshadowing and a metaphor of that, and now God is calling a people from all nations to himself called the church, and Jesus was the son of Adam then. He's called Ben-Adam, Son of Adam, son of, most English translations say son of man, 34 times in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke focuses on Jesus' connection as the second or final Adam, and therefore Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 goes back all the way to Adam. Mark, Jesus emphasizes, I didn't come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And servants in that day didn't have a genealogy. They belonged to their master. So Mark includes no genealogy. John is emphasizing that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, God himself. And so his genealogy is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was toward God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has is, that is come into being. Then he jumps down to verse 14. This word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, and so forth. So uh, John's genealogy just deals with 
Jesus as the eternally begotten Son of God, which is one of the great Christian mysteries, right? The incarnation that Jesus is begotten of the Father, but there was never a time when he was not begotten of the Father. He was eternally begotten of the Father. So when you have that completely figured out, let me know and you can take over the class. But <laughs> because you uh, will have the, one of the great mysteries of the Christian life you'll be able to explain to all of us. We can explain what it is, and we know it accurately because God has revealed it in Scripture, but we don't know it exhaustively because our finite, finite little puny minds can't handle it, right? So with that backdrop, John does a lot of things different. He has five major discourses or sermons of Jesus that the other Gospels don't have, and he has five miracles of Jesus, four of which the other Gospels don't have. And in the Passover supper, which starts at the beginning of John 13, he emphasizes the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What do they emphasize in their Gospels about the Passover supper? The betrayal. The betrayals. One, there's three things. Betrayals, one of them. Uh, who, what betrayal? Judas. Judas. Yeah. What else? So that's actually, I would call that the third thing. The Lord's Supper is the first thing. He gives us the Lord's Supper. And when it says he took the cup, that's like we are, don't know the Old Testament, so we don't understand. They had, when they practiced the Passover, part of what the way they practiced the Passover is there was a cup filled with wine that was for Elijah. And it was kind of symbolic of Elijah's prophesying that the Messiah would come. And so when he took the cup, He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of everything Elijah was expecting. I'm the one Moses and, uh, and Elijah and all the prophets promised. He took that cup. Right? Did everyone get that? So that's the first thing. Uh, what's the second thing? We got the first and the third. One other thing. Similar to the third thing a little bit. In New, if you think like how a New Testament person would have thought. Peter's denial of Jesus three times, which in the New Testament way of thinking, that was the same as betrayal. To, de to actually call yourself a Christian, when it talks about denying the master who bought them, notice that Peter is the one who talks about that later. Because Jesus says to him, when, you've, when you repent and when you've been restored again, strengthen your brothers. So his epistles actually talk about people who deny the master who bought them. And, uh, and he said, um, um, because he's uniquely qualified to know about that subject, and he's trying to strengthen brethren not to do that. The, what that means is to call yourself a Christian and not live your talk. Anybody ever done, in, anybody ever done that? Any, a little? <laughs> Let's not show you. Like anyone who didn't raise their hand, you're a liar. <laughs> Liar, liar, pants on fire. All right. Uh, so that's an old saying that they used to use for little kids. Do they still use that for little kids? So, some of these go way back, you know, like cooties. I heard cooties still exist. I, they had cooties when I was a kid. I think my mother's generation had cooties. All right. I always liked girls in first grade, so I liked the doctrine of cooties because that meant none of the other guys were trying. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Just kidding. 
Degenerate. All right. Um, so with all that background, now let's have Jeff read John 13, uh, understanding that John is covering things very different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke were covering. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Good. Not speaking okay, okay, keep going. What verse are you on? Okay, that's probably far enough. All right, so um, now what's the background that happens? Just somebody summarize the first 12 verses. What happens in the first 12 verses before he says, you call me teacher and Lord and I'm giving you an example? What had he done that, they, that they're supposed to follow the example? He had washed their feet, okay? So let's think about this. This is kind of, it's very important. You know, important to understand biblical culture when you're reading biblical things because they were written in a context. Hi, Josh. There's more seats. Um, so, um, for instance, like when the prodigal son's father goes running to him, like a father in that culture wouldn't belittle him. Like a father that was old enough to have inheritance or rich enough to have inheritances for his son and servants as, as that father's depicted, he would never go running that would be considered very inappropriate behavior for a dad. And so, you know, the story actually is telling you something about the nature of God, that he's not what they thought he was, because he goes running quickly to, to, to his son when his son comes back. Likewise, in this, there's something very different happening here. What, what is Jesus, what, what's so different about Jesus washing their feet? Somebody put it in some context for us. Go ahead. They thought he would be like Superman almost, that he was going to conquer the geopolitical province of Rome and like save their asses and everything, and like everything was going to be fantastic and like paradise. They didn't expect a suffering servant who was going to be willing to wash their feet and die on the tree. Right. Okay. So that's good. And you were going to. I was going to say it's, it's kind of the lowest of the low, like a toilet cleaning. Right. Yeah. So in Israel, if you were if you were rich enough to have a servant, and we don't understand their culture, so because of. Welfare has changed everything. So people, up until the welfare culture of the 60s, lots of people, even people who were kind of blue-collar kind of people, would have a household servant at times, part-time or whatever. That used to be much more common, right? And uh, so like in in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus tells Peter to put down the nets, and then they put down the necks, and then it gives us the account of Peter and his brother Andrew, and then John and his brother James leaving. It says, if you look at this, if you read carefully, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew left their father in his fishing boat, but uh, uh, James and John left their father and his servants. And even very poor people often had enough of a business to have some hired help. So one of the things you would do is your hired help, when, when Bob Timer came over for dinner, 
I would have my hired help wash his feet because he would have been wearing sandals and he would have been on roads that weren't paved and they would have been dusty and so forth and his feet would have been kind of dirty. And so as a courtesy, I would have the servant do that, but I wouldn't do that at the, as the Lord of the house. So Jesus is doing something pretty radical. He's actually saying, I'm that servant guy. And I'm doing this to redefine what leadership is. From now on, the kings of the Gentiles, they like palaces, and they like to be served, and they like the accoutrements of wealth and power. And I'm raising up a different kind of, a different kind of king, a servant king, a king who does the lowliest of tasks because he's not above that. You know, one of the things I'm most thankful for in the Lord's grace in my own life is I've never belonged to a church that my first job in the church wasn't taking out the trash. Every church I've ever joined, that was my first job. Even this church, which my wife and I started, in the early days, uh, my sons were teenagers and it wasn't right in the inner city to send them down to the church late at night. So I would go down to the church at 11 or 12 or 1 every Wednesday night and gather up all the waste baskets and take them out and, and take the wheelie and roll it out to the street and everything. Be and that was my first job I had at Grace Christian Fellowship. <laughs> and I, you know, I would encourage you that, that Jesus is kind of saying, I'm giving you a new model. And this new model is, now, I do think you, you graduate in the kingdom from... Uh, maybe uh, taking out the trash to having more spiritual specialty. There's div there is division of labor, but you never graduate from doing it for the same purpose. You know, like Jeff may not take out the trash. He, he's starting to use his computer talents to serve the church in some very important ways. But it's because he would wash the feet if, if, if that he'll, whatever's needed, Right? And Jesus is saying something pretty radical. Like, I'm, def I'm redefining everything about human existence here in the model and the pattern that I'm, like, the top guys aren't, you know, like we give all the accolades to the sports stars who win the championships and so forth. And, you know, like, I'm saying the role players are the best guys. <laughs> I'm saying the guys that empower the others. So that's pretty radical. All right, so who's got the next scripture that we uh, had lined up? You're on what, um, Mark 1, 29 through 39? Oh, okay, so let's go to 1 Peter 2, 21. Which is in, that one's also in the, so by the word, the way, the word example, I decided not to put the Greek word in there, but it does mean um, model, figure, example, Type, are you familiar with the concept of types in the Bible? Like the Noah's Ark is a type or foreshadowing of the church as a thing that God brings his salvation for his people through, right? Okay, so Jesus is saying, I'm the prototype of the new kind of leadership here. So 1 Peter 2.21, Bob. All right, in ESV, for this you have been called, 
Okay, so one thing we try to do at Grace Christian Fellowship and Rock Campus Fellowship all the time is empower you to know how to read your Bible. So make a note somewhere on the side of your paper, put it in your brain. When you're reading the New Testament, look for how many times it talks about Jesus suffering. It's around 50 or 60 times. Why? Because the Israelites had an idea about what, like Morgan was telling us, they were expecting us a, a Messiah that was going to be like uh, the powerful kings of the world, like Alexander the Great or whatever, and he was going, or Caesar, and he was going to throw out the Romans. Their expectations were that, that uh, they actually believed that no one who was blessed of God would ever suffer. Does that sound very similar to a message today? What message, Lena? The prosperity gospel. That's Joel Alstein. I mean, and I don't normally mention Christian leaders by name, but he's probably crossed the boundary of no longer being Christian, I would say. But um, if, it, if they are Christian, I usually talk about trends and ideas, not so much pers per persons. But I, I doubt that he could actually still be considered within the bounds of Christianity. Um, because he doesn't even claim that Christianity is the only way, or lot, lot, I mean, lots of things. So, he, um, but you know, like he's the number one seller in Christian bookstores, except for the Left Behind series, which we don't let me go there. Uh, I'd like to leave the number. Now, uh, by the way, when Jesus says, "You call me teacher and Lord, for so I am," the Greek is ego me. What's he saying there? <clears throat> That's one of the, like you often hear today because people misunderstand, you often hear a lot of evangelicals say there are seven I am sayings of Jesus in the, in the, in the Gospel of John. There are over 40 I am sayings of, the, of Jesus. So remember when Moses said, tell them who sent me, what does God say to Moses? Adam, you know. I am who I am, or I am that I am, the, uh, which the, the Hebrews call the tetragrammaton. Uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, uh, he who causes to be, the great, I am. the great I am. And Jesus is saying I am over and over and over again. And he's saying I am in this context, I'm what it means to be a teacher. Like all teachers come from my creating teaching. All creatures come from my creating lordship. All leadership comes from me. This, so he's saying, ego me, I am the teacher, I am the Lord, I am the source of all teachers and all lords. Okay? And I'm telling you, it's a whole different kind of leadership that I'm bringing about in my kingdom. All right. Um, then what Bob read, for this you've been called, again, a model. So the, the, the Hebrews, they actually had this idea one of the reasons most Israelites reject Jesus is because they said, well, if he was from God, how could he have suffered so much? What, does anyone know a verse in Deuteronomy that they often would look to? Cursed is... Hangs on the tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Somebody find that verse in Deuteronomy. So they're basically saying, hey, if he was from God, he couldn't have suffered, like, he couldn't have suffered that much. They had no room in their theology, in their sort of their own version of the prosperity gospel, for suffering. 
Don't we even today in the church, like if somebody's going through a lot of problems, we kind of think, gee, I wonder what they did to be <laughs> right? Instead of, now, sometimes uh, problems we have is related to, to sin or, or, or something, but did Jesus come to condemn us about that? No, he came to forgive us and liberate us from the, con like he came to re not only forgive us, what's the next issue besides forgiveness when you're working with, like those of you who are being trained to be leaders, uh, which is a lot of people in this room, what, what do you want to bring besides forgiveness to the table? Restoration. Restoration. Precisely. That's a bit different issue. Right? It's one thing, say, let's say a husband and wife comes to a place where they forgive each other. Does that fix everything in their marriage? <laughs> now, being quicker to forgive and less less uh, harsh and and less holding of a keeping of accounts and that kind of thing that's an important first step isn't it to good to is that an important first step in racial reconciliation or marital reconciliation or any other kind of reconciliation being quick to forgive quick you know um, I remember a Christian leader that I respect someone saying, don't you remember when so-and-so wrote that nasty letter to you about this and that? And, and the leader said, no, they did. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> right? You want to, that's, that's, that's an important step, but restoration is a whole nother step. You know, uh, that's going beyond like, well, we forgave each other, and now, but now we have this great marriage. Do you know that some of the best marriages are people who, who actually had really bad marriages and set their heart to having a good marriage? If you look even in marriage counseling, people, people are quick to divorce, but most people, if both people will admit their faults and, and hold themselves in some sort of accountability where they get some input, usually they, and within five years they have a super marriage. There's all kinds of statistics to prove that, by the way. That would be a novelty in our culture, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, so who's got Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Jonathan, was that you? What? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is that what we gave you? Or what did we give you? Um, Mark 1, 29 through 30. Nine, right? Mark 1, 29. Okay, so let's all go to Mark 1, 29 through 39. I forgot what order we did this in. Go ahead. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. All the way to 39. And what translation are you reading from? Uh, ESV. ESV, okay. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. 
All right, now, there's some things we can learn about Jesus' model from this. Let's, let's just see how good we're at. I'm, I'm trying to have more discussion tonight, which makes we, means we'll go, uh, you know, we won't cover as much ground. But, I, but if we get these points, it'll change your life. It really will. Like, if you got what I just said about John 13, you'll be a whole different person the rest of your life. <laughs> now, trying, working that out is what the life's journey is about, right? <laughs> Um, so somebody say what's some things if Jesus is our model what are some things we could learn from this passage healing casting out demons okay alright so we'll, we'll come we'll come back to that one healing and casting out demons what did you say he went out went out what where okay the importance of like just having the solitude Right, that's what I was going after first. Thank you, Morgan. Uh, yeah, like if Jesus, if Jesus actually need, like after he did a bunch of ministry, if he actually needed to go be alone and pray, how many of us struggle to to make that happen? Go be alone, pray, read, study. Why? Because of what I call the tyranny of the urgent versus what's actually important. Right. Who battles that battle every day? I think everybody does. That's why the scripture has that, right? Because the scripture is very real. You know, there's an old, I was once listening to a theological discussion of sexuality and someone said, why is there so much sex in the Bible? And the person said, because, uh, or why is, I'm sorry, why is there so much sex in the Bible? And the person said, because there's so much sex in life and the Bible is an accurate representation of life. The truth is this is in here because we all struggle with the tyranny of the urgent versus what there's important. Is there anybody here who doesn't have the thought, I should spend more time alone with the Lord and read the Bible more and, and stay on my Bible goals? Anybody ever you get enough of that for themselves? No. <laughs> if you do, I want you to go around and pray over each one of us one at a time. <laughs> So if Jesus needed to do that, now, what's something else you could learn? Let's stay on that point alone. There's another thing right about that point that you should be able to get. Look at the text and you'll find it. Early in the morning he did it. Right. Now... Who has uh, an issue with shortly after you get up, real life starts to happen, and re there's responsibilities, phone calls, emails to homework that needs yeah. done, classes to get to, and so forth, right? And before long, your spirit is involved in the activities of the day. So what Jesus is always modeling for us, and actually if you read the whole Bible, you'll get... Um, I used to be a rebellious teenager, so and, and so when the uh, first time I was taught this by my pastor, he said, 
Joshua rose early in the morning, and, I, and so I said, yeah, but Joshua's dead. <laughs> Josh, Joshua died. Well, Jesus is still with us. Actually, Joshua is too, but he's with the Lord, but uh, he's sort of very much with us in a certain way. Um, <laughs> you know, over and over again, it says that various people in the Bible rose early in the morning to seek the Lord. And I used to say, yeah, but they died, <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to get that habit in my life. <laughs> yeah, like get up before, you know, what, what happened to the manna when the sun came up? Does anyone remember? It melted, right? So you, the, you had to get the manna before the sun took it. What's the lesson there? You have to get, you have to hear from the Lord. You have to study his word. You have to get that before the day. And I've actually watched people in our church who grow a lot versus people who don't grow a lot. Most of the people who grow a lot find a lot of time to study the word, but the ones who really grow a lot, especially ones that have a lot of responsibilities and they still grow a lot, are usually the people who have the discipline of getting up to st and study an hour or two before they go to work. Not to signal people out, but Adam, that's a, that's a pretty regular habit for you, right? You tend to get up and study before you go. Sometimes more than others. Yeah. Do, is it, do you find it helpful when you do? Yeah. Because what happens when you get to work? Like, there's stuff starts to happen, right? As the world would say, the, you know, something hits the fan and, I mean, you know, like, whatever. There's emails, there's your boss, there's a, a list of to-do things, and, and you got, you know, computer problems to figure out, right, Bob? <laughs> things, things, and you, you can't tell your boss, yeah, let me just spend an hour with the Lord first, and I'll, <laughs> then I'll start uh, programming. <laughs> then I'll start doing my job. Anybody ever do that when they go to work? <laughs> I'll go ahead and do whatever you do after I read for an hour. <laughs> no, it doesn't probably happen. Okay, so that's a, set, that was a, good, that's a good second thing. What else happened? What else can you get from this pattern? Well, Bradbury already said it, real, that real ministry actually involves supernatural things. We've come to expect not in our culture. Hebrews 13.8, does anyone know that verse without looking it up? Stephen, you do. Uh, Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So should we expect Jesus Christ to do any different today? We should? Why? So, but what have we come to expect? How many people have come to expect that you're going to see demons cast out and, and people healed at your church? Okay, how many people expected that before they came to Grace Christian Fellowship? Yeah, you, you did. You went to a church where they did some of that. But it's not that common. How many people had a church where that was never expected to happen? Where you never cast out demons? Or you, you never saw someone healed? You know, uh, Leah Gray's not here, but I'll tell, like, um, you know, some years back we discerned that her asthma was related to demonic spirits. We cast a bunch of demons out of her. And at the time she was taking five asthma medications. She had asthma for so many years. I mean, she, we, she was at... 30 years uh, having been diagnosed with asthma and she couldn't even go to the shower without taking her breather and inhaler 
She hasn't needed any asthma medications for three years now. She's done races with John, too. What's that? She's done races with yeah, John. Yeah, now she can run like 5Ks and stuff like that. Those things are real, and this tells us if, G if we actually take at face value that Jesus is supposed to be a model, then we should expect that, our, that, like, that is something we should learn how to do. Now, I didn't expect that when I became a Christian, but then I started reading the Bible, and, it, and I said, wow, how do we chase this? Now, do I see it on the level that we see Jesus doing it? No. Do I see it more often than, than, than I once did? Yes. And are we making progress toward that pattern? I would say definitely. And is that important? I think it's very important. Somebody go to Mark 3, 13 through 19. Who, Byron, you ready? Uh, has everyone got Mark 3? Give them one second to get there. Can't take too long. Go ahead and read it while people are getting there. Mark 3, 13 through 19. Keep where you were because that will help you get to the next place. Go ahead. Which I love that. Everyone thinks like the Bible has no humor. I mean, that's pretty funny, really. I mean, <laughs> keep going. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaan and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed. All right, now. Uh, what's some things we can get from this pattern? What did Jesus, it says he called the 12. What did he call them to do? No, no, no fair if you've already heard me teach on this. And you, in other words, if you can get it from the text. What do we think he called them to do? What do we normally think? That he called them to send them out to preach, right? But read it more carefully. They might be with him. That they might be with him. The first thing he called them to do is hang out. <coughs> so what's the pattern like are there uh, then it actually goes on to name 12 people that he so do you have someone that you have specifically prayed about and officially uh, is discipling you to, uh, to become more like Jesus or are you doing that with someone are there people you're discipling to be more like Jesus? First of all, I would say that if you're a father or mother, that's the first and foremost primary aspect of your calling. You better be studying because you better because you're you're called to disciple your children into the things of the kingdom. Today we estimates are depending on whose whose studies you're reading, anywhere from 35 to 70% of kids that are growing up in Christian homes are leaving the faith during their uh, late high school and through college ages. Now, 
if this is all real and there's really a God, a heaven, hell, there's no purpose to life unless you know God and so forth, is that acceptable? Are you, are you going to be happy with I have five kids and I lost two of them? Is that what your goals are as a, then when you get married and have kids? I hope not. So there's a pattern there, and the first pattern was that they would be with him. Somebody, uh, whoever had it, Mark, that verse, uh, somebody read us uh, Acts 4.13. Who's got, who, all right, go ahead, Mason. Right, so uh, read that one more time because there were people going by the door and it got like, kind of... Uh, I'd rather not close it in case so, so it's welcoming. It's okay. okay. Hopefully there's not someone going by every minute. No, Michigan State, I love it. Are you from Michigan? No, Spartans was my high school. Oh, okay. Yeah. You guys uh, thought you were Michigan State. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were in school of ordinariness, Okay, so put that with Mark 3.14. Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him. So let me give you some context here. In Mark, in Acts, you hear a lot today, the average Christian person, almost, almost every kid who's been raised in a Bible-believing church will tell you, Jesus chose ordinary, uneducated men to be, to be his disciples. Do you know why they say that? They say it because they take this verse as being true. But this is the Sanhedrin's ver opinion of what the disciples were. And actually, if you understand the culture, it was because they were the people in Judea were like people in Ivy League schools are today. They would say, like, well, Macy, what's your major, Macy? Math. math. They would say, and uh, Chris is also a math major. So they would be like someone from Harvard saying, well, Chris... And Macy went to Cedarville and Wright State. They don't know anything about math because they don't have a bachelor's degree in math from Harvard. That's what the Sanhedrin was actually saying. They're saying these guys were uneducated guys. But actually, they were guys who came from Galilee. They came from a town called Capernaum. It was about eight miles from Nazareth where Jesus and, uh, and when you grew up in Galilee, we have all kinds of documentation that proves this. You would memorize the first five books of the New Testament by the age of 12. Now, not all girls did that, but many girls did. Because there was a disparity in gender and in education at times, but less so in Galilee than most places. So... Um, you would also memorize one to 3,000 other scripture verses, and the people who memorized the best got invited by the best rabbis to be their followers. Paul was actually from uh, what's now Syria, he, uh, uh, from a city called Tarsus, and he was invited by a guy named Gamaliel to be his disciple. And Gamaliel was the leading number one guy on the Sanhedrin for being, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. That means he not only, he not only memorized the whole Old Testament, he would have memorized the entire Mishnah in what's called the Midrash. That'd be equivalent in our day that, to say, 
Well, Byron Burks doesn't just know the whole King James and English Standard Version Bibles by, by heart, but he also knows all the study notes for the English Standard Version Study Bible, <laughs> everyone by memory. Therefore, we invited him to live at the campus mystery house. <laughs> good thing, good thing we don't. Good thing that we have a. Good thing that we have a vision to get back to biblical standards more gradually. <laughs> that's really what that's. So, the truth is, when you hear that the disciples were uneducated men, that's not true. That's just what most Bible-believing people think today because they haven't really learned how to read the Bible by understanding the historical context that it was written in. Secondly, the reason they gave them credit for having all this confidence was what? Because they recognized them as having been with Jesus. So this idea that Jesus appointed them to hang out with him was pretty, is a pretty important part of the, of the model, isn't it? Now, um, who had Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Let's read that, and then I got a question for you. This is from the NASB. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you all. Okay, is that New King James or New American Standard? New American Standard, right? So New King James, King James, New King James and King James say, Lo, I'm with you always into the end of the age. So that's why you shouldn't fly. No, I'm just kidding. It's just an old joke. All right. Uh, so what? If, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples, uh, that can't mean anything. It either means nothing or it means what? Do what I did to you. There's no other way to interpret what it means to make a disciple except to go back to Mark 3 and say, Jesus appointed them to be with him. And he said, come on, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Let's hang out. Now, I do an experiment all the time, and I do this um, in this. So you can't answer this question if you've been part of uh, Rock Campus Fellowship or Grace Christian Fellowship more than one year or more, let's even say more than six months. I do an experiment all the time where I say, uh, in my first, second, or third meeting with someone, how often does a qualified pastor who's really knows the whole Bible and really has uh, other Christian leaders have ordained them and said they have, this guy has maturity in Christ or so forth, or this lady has maturity in Christ, Someone who's been designated by the church to do that, in other words, not just somebody who says, yeah, why don't you follow me? Because I'll teach you how to drink beer or something, you know, <laughs> or whatever. You know, I'm talking about someone who, I'm talking about someone who some people have sort of put through a testing process, a character process, and said, you know, this person has a certain degree of Christian maturity. How many of you had ha have had someone just invite you to spend time with them more than once a week or once a week or more in other words how many people have come from a kind of christianity where no one's ever done that to you right byron right but what what did jesus tell did jesus tell us to go make sunday night meetings and wednesday night meetings and sunday morning meetings and uh 
uh, youth group and Royal Rangers. And <laughs> did he? No, he told you. He said, go to do the same process I did to you. Repeat it. And he meant for it. He said, I will build my church. He meant for it to be done in a church. Now, the few groups who take that seriously are usually called parachurch groups. And we, I promised we would get into that a little bit. So a church group is actually something that's an outreach from a church. And a church in the Bible would have a plurality of elders. It would have a, 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 you know, some, an or, a certain way of life. It would have certain clar clarified doctrines and visions and so forth, right, and goals. But a parachurch is actually an organization that does some of the work of Christianity, such as evangelism and discipleship. And then it says, go to the church of your choice, by which it means attend a Sunday meeting. But you really get your church during the week as part of the parachurch group, right? That's where you really have community and Bible studies and friendships that go below the surface, right? Now, parachurch groups, I'm not knocking them. Here's what you need to hear clearly. Parachurches happen when the church isn't doing its job. So it's not the parachurch's fault. Don't get upset with the parachurch. You know, it's not that these campus ministries, are they're doing what they see in the Bible needs to be done, and the churches aren't doing. I always say every church should have a campus ministry. Why? Because the future leaders of the world are there, and the whole Bible's emphasis is on the next generation, always. So many churches today are all people over 50 or 60. Um, and I'm glad that we now have some people, or like uh, two years ago, we didn't have anybody over 35 or 40 except my wife and me. But uh, now we have like 15 or so people that are over 40. Well, at least 35. But... Uh, but, you know, we have 90 people who are, uh, who are under 35. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do according to the Bible. That's all. If you're not, like, if you're not raising up the next generation of Christian leaders, what are you doing? Dying. You're dying? Yeah, that's good. Good point. Exactly. That was a great answer. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're doing. That's sad, isn't it? All right, who's got John 14, 12? Uh, and who's got John 20, 21? You got John. All right, who, Deanna, you got John 14, 12? So he's actually saying what? If you believe in me, you'll do the same stuff I do. Did he say, and that will be for this, what I'm saying here will be applied to uh, one generation. Your initial generation of the apostles, and then forget it forever. No, he never said anything like that. And there's nothing in the Bible to believe that it's supposed to be something like that. And back to this discipleship thing, all I'm saying, like, Really, I would encourage you, if you say you're a Bible-believing Christian, make sure you have somebody, 
Like, discern what stage of life you're in. And are you like a person who should be doing what Jesus did to the 12? Or are you a person that should be having that done to, for you? But if you're having that done for you, it should clearly be biblically, follow me in a, in a, and you'll become fishers of men, so that you can eventually do that for others. And if that's not a goal that you're taking seriously, then I would actually encourage you to think about whether you're actually really a Bible-following Christian. Like, do you see yourself as being able to take uh, a young lady under your wing, I'll pick on Jane and Teresa, in, uh, you know, three years from now, and, and teach them everything they need to know about God? And are you training for that? And, if, and who are you training with? As a way of life, because Jesus clearly invited them to be a part of a community. Now, they were a traveling community, but they only traveled between Galilee and Judea, which would be like equivalent to about Troy to Cincinnati, maybe Lima to Cincinnati. With Middletown being Samaria. No, Dayton was probably Samaria. No, I'm just <laughs> At least Jesus hung out with the Samaritan woman and told the parable of the good sea. Jesus had hope for Dayton. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's the. Uh, John 20, 21. Maureen, John 20, 21. Nope. So, how did he, he send them? As the Father sent him. Right. What does the word as mean? Like, just the way the Father sent me, so I sent you. So he's saying, like, Davion, Jesus is saying, I was sent by the Father, and in the same manner, I'm sending you. Now, I believe that on one level, that means individually, but on another level, it means that's what I'm sending the church to do. So even if we're not, like, are we part of a church that's going to do that? And do we see ourselves as playing a key role in that? <coughs> and if not, talk to someone who is doing that and say, help me get to be part of that team. How do I get there? All right, now... Um, so next point is we must uh, re-examine, well, I was gonna, yeah, let's not do Matthew 1 through 4 and all that. Maybe I'll just give you an overview of that real quick. Nah, no, it's too late. You can ask me in private about that. It'll be no extra charge. Or you can ask me that over pizza or something. All right, who, uh, somebody read John 16, 13. Um, Grant, why don't you read John 16, 13? That's the next verse on the page, or you can turn it to it in your Bible. Just always say what translation you're reading from, by the way, too. Okay. <clears throat> what translation do you have? Uh, this is um, NIV. All right. Somebody else had NIV. Is that you, Macy? Yep. Anyone else have NIV? Uh, All right. John, Haley? Sorry. What's that? Where in John? John chapter 16, verse 13. 
And then Austin, back on the front page, one of our, uh, well, just uh, somewhere, yeah, it says Acts 17, where is that? Uh, 11 and 12 under point D. Let's go back to that after he reads this. In other words, you read that verse, then Austin, you read Acts 17. We'll talk about them together. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. No, that's good. Uh, Austin, go ahead. Acts 17, 11 through 12. And these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, but they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with the number of prominent Greek women and men. Okay, now, let's put those thoughts together for a minute. There is a school of thought today that says that John 16, 13 applies only to the process that the apostles went through where the Holy Spirit led them to write the New Testament. And then the Holy Spirit stopped doing that. Okay, now that is a modernist school called fundamentalism or evangelicalism's approach to that. However, no Christians believe that in history they believed that that was a process that, that led to the writing of the New Testament and then the New Testament was closed. But the Holy Spirit would always be helping us understand the truth of the Old and New Testament in every generation. Right? Because what, what, why did, we've already demonstrated earlier that the people of Jesus' time missed what the Holy Spirit was doing in Christ because they had paradigms of what they were expecting the Messiah to be that Jesus didn't fit. And, had, and that's why Jesus said, remember Jesus said to the Sanhedrin when they were against him and so forth, he said, you're just like your fathers, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, who else said that? Uh, somebody pretty famous, somebody around our tables named after him. Stephen, right? He said, you know, um, so the, because what the Holy Spirit does is he guides you into all the truth. Are we, do we have, a, so what would that tell you if, if you took that idea seriously? We would have nothing to worry about because the Holy Spirit would help us when we need it. And he would always be there and we could always rely on that. Well, possibly. Uh, I, I would say that's not that's not necessarily true. Good guess. Right. It would tell us that we probably need to know the Holy Spirit because that wouldn't be true if you weren't able to hear the Holy Spirit or you weren't uh, listening for the Holy Spirit or so forth and what Morgan said wouldn't happen. And in fact, if you assume what Morgan said, that would be like the most dangerous thing you could assume. That would be exactly the wrong message. It would be like saying, uh, yeah, I don't have to worry about anything because the Holy Spirit will take care of it in, in some sort of passive way, but I'm not seeking to know the Holy Spirit, to hear the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit do that process, right? And that's, in fact, what Morgan's describing, I think, is, is contemporary Christianity. Oh, don't worry, we got it covered. I don't need to know that much. I grew up in this stuff. I know all about it. I heard Bible stories since I was a kid. I know everything there is to know about God and Christianity, right? Isn't that kind of, 
what most of us have been sort of taught to bring to the table. I know all this stuff already. I went to Dominion Academy. <laughs> right? So, and uh, I'm uh, very in favor of Dominion Academy. I sent my kids there. <laughs> and I've taught, uh, you know, the, I've taught Bible survey as its substitute teacher and so forth at times. But, um, but I would say that's a good start. But the Holy Spirit needs to lead us and guide us into all the truth. And we need to seek to know the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can engage the scriptures with the Holy Spirit's guidance. And so anything that might bring us into a deeper encounter experience with the Holy Spirit might probably something we should think about. We shouldn't just assume we got all the Holy Spirit there is to get. Right? Especially if it doesn't look like what the Holy Spirit actually does in the Bible. If our, so, like, study what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, and if our Christianity doesn't look a lot like that, then maybe there's more to, to the Holy Spirit than we've come to know. As many people are now calling the Holy Spirit the neglected and forgotten member of the Trinity. So that's, uh, uh, now, we're, we're winding down. So let's get into, we actually can, we've actually finished this outline. And I, I spent a whole lot more time on Jesus as our model than I normally have ever done before. Deanna, that's more for the book. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think we recorded some of this tonight. <laughs> so, so that's more, for, more work for you. <laughs> um, all right, so on the bottom of this outline is 15 key emphasis that we want to rethink or re-examine. And I purposely have some alternate uh, words like reconsider, restudy, dig deep. Make yourself think about words. Like I always use synonyms and alternate words to make myself engage a word. And restore, rebuild, reconstruct. Mm. Like we can't just have this theoretical. That's one of the biggest problems in contemporary Christianity. It's about do we have the right doctrine or the right ideas not if they're not applied. In fact, our doctrines are a deception if they're not applied. Did everyone just hear that? That was worth the price of admission already. <laughs> How much did you pay for your ticket today? <laughs> not that much. Uh, no, if, if you think about it, if, if, if all our doctrines are correct, and, but they, lead to, they don't lead to Christian dis, radical service and discipleship and all the things we're talking about, then they've actually become more of an of an exception than a than a help, haven't they? Just like James, go ahead and talk more about that verse. Faith, faith without works is what. James says it's dead. You know, my first experience with a Christian funeral was my little brother died when I was seventeen. And he was eleven. He was the closest person in the world to me. I spoke at his funeral. But I walked in, you know, the afternoon I got home because, you know, he, I was two days getting back home when that happened. And, and, uh, and it was like, wow, there's his body. It doesn't look anything like him. I love how, do you ever notice that a lot of things in life are because it's the, they're trying to convince themselves of a truth that's not true? 
Like almost all commercials are telling you something about a company. They're trying to overcome the, the truth of what they really are. <laughs> you know, like what's in your wallet? Uh, what's that? Uh, Capital One. Capital One. Like I own a financing company. More people have more negative things on their credit from Capital One than any other company <laughs> because they're sharks. They're, they're the worst credit card you could possibly have. Right. So and, and Wells Fargo now has this whole thing about how they're trustworthy and so forth, because they were the most immoral bank in the bank collapse, of, uh, you know, so forth. So now they're talking about how we're, we've been trusted for in the Anheuser-Busch, you know, a great American beer because it was bought by a European company. and It's not American at all anymore. <laughs> you can almost assume that every ad is trying to overcome is trying to tell you a lie of what the product not is. Right? At funerals, everyone says, they, don't they look just like themselves? <laughs> they, don't you hear that at funerals a lot? I go to a lot of funerals. <laughs> it's part of being old. And they always go like, oh, they look just like themselves. I, you know, my, I went to my Aunt Carolyn's funeral, my Aunt Gary's uh, brother-in-law's funeral. They didn't look anything like themselves. Their spirit and soul are gone to be with the Lord, and they have to put all kind of makeup on them just to not look too bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So back to what Lena was saying, faith without works is dead. It's a cadaver. It, we still have the church building. We still have Sunday service. We still do all the same liturgy and all the same things we've always done. We have a church picnic, but is there anybody coming to know Christ? Is there anybody becoming more on fire? Is there anybody becoming more radical? Is there anybody... Is it starting to look any closer to the Christianity you see in the Bible? Read enough of the book of Acts. Like I, One of the things I did my first four and a half months of being a Christian, I actually read the book of Acts 40 times on purpose. Because I wanted to say, is, is our Christianity becoming like this? And if not, then, I, well, then we've got to start over. Now, that may sound pretty radical, but I think if you're going to say, I follow the Bible, then you got to get past, like, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always brought up. Well, we've always had cherry pie and never have an apple pie at the church picnic. And we've always used the King James and not, we don't use the, or, you know, we've always done it this way or that, that way. We don't have, we don't do these, right? But is it scriptural? Is there a reason why we do it this way? You know, does it produce the fruit of the kingdom? Is there any good reason for what we're doing? I'm not saying we should change everything. I'm saying we should examine everything to see how biblical it really is. Okay? So there's 15 topics. Uh, we're going to go over a little bit today because I'm going to just get into, go to the next outline, and I'm going to get into loving God. So we spent five weeks on loving God. So this, I'm actually kind of trying to review here, which may take half a semester, but I'm trying to review what we've covered in the last, was it two to three, two years? Two years we did this series. Right, And so we got emphasis one, two, three, and four done in the first year. In the second year, we did emphasis five for the whole year. So tonight, I hope to get through emphasis one. So loving God, like we have made love something very vague in our culture, right? Every, I love my dog on the back of our car, right? I love Jesus, and I love pizza, and I love 
schnauzers or whatever. Right? And we love everything, you know. <laughs> What's that? I said I just really like pizza. Yeah. I love New York and, you know, part of that's unfortunate because in Greek there's three different words for love. Uh, agape, ophileo, and, and uh, eros. And... Um, but it goes deeper than that. Like lots of teenage boys have in the backseat of a car told a girl, I really love you, I really love you. We have all kind of definitions of love in our culture. And so what we have to do is we have to rethink what does it mean biblically to love God? And then we spent five weeks doing that. First of all, um, and so let's just at least touch on this a little bit. Somebody who's, uh, did you read yet, Austin? Kyle, uh, Stephen, Matthew 22. Uh, 34 through 40. And then, uh, Daniel, go with Matthew, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Exodus 21 through 11. And then Bradbury, go with Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And uh, back to you, John 17, 3. We'll stop there for now. I'll try not to comment too much, though. So go ahead and read it. Uh, the ESV, uh, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So let me ask you something. Have you ever thought about that verse in the sense of this? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Have you ever thought maybe that's something that, we, that Jesus actually expects us to take seriously and to pursue? Because aren't we kind of like, I'm okay with God. Like, he doesn't bother me too much. <laughs> right? Are we, how, how like passionate are we? I, most people, I, I always love when, uh, I'll pick on Unbesh and Deanna. They were, such, they were such busy people. And then they discovered each other. And all of a sudden they had way more time. <laughs> right? Like everyone. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not a disappointed in it. That's a great process. I enjoyed watching them develop. Like as a pastor, you couldn't ask for God to bring two people together in a more exemplary way. But it's funny, like, we like, like, I don't have that much time for my devotions. And yeah, I know I should read the Bible more, but I got an algebra test Tuesday. And, you know, don't, don't we have all kinds of reasons not to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind? In fact, what I'm trying to get at is I want you just to examine, is that something you actually are real, that's a real strong desire of your heart? Like, God, take me there at all costs. I really want to get to where I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I really want that to be a realistic goal. Now, I'm, we're going to discover when we get into studying grace next week that you're, God has to take you there. But if that's not something that really is a passion that you think about, I would say you ought to, you ought to ask God to convert you a little deeper. So let's just say that much about that verse, because, uh, and let's go to the next one. All right, uh, Exodus 20, 1 through 11, ESV. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless he who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and, and the sea, and all that is in with them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it for us. Now, why, the reason I stopped there is those are the parts of what's called the Ten Commandments that have to do with what it means to love God. So, let's take a few of those apart. Remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus? What, did, what was his question? He asked Jesus a question. Anybody remember what his question was? Teacher, what must I do to get into heaven? Well, close. Have to have eternal life, which is something much different than heaven. Um, teacher, what must, I do to in, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. Now, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is, the heaven is a byproduct of eternal life, but eternal life is a, is a quality of relationship with God that you enter into now. And uh, will result in going to heaven because you will get old and die. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, <laughs> I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I was once young like all of you. But, uh, but I'm not anymore. Uh, <laughs> I had a full head of hair at one time. More than Bob. <laughs> I had more hair than Bob at one time. <laughs> Hard to believe. <laughs> uh, Bob, you might be old someday. Um, try, to, try to think of me kindly when, when, the, when that time comes. Um, so, um, just take some things here like, thou shalt have no other gods besides me. That can mean instead of me, or in competition to me. Anybody ever had any things that were in competition with their love for God? Mm -hmm. Everything. What? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's like French fries. No. <laughs> Let's not go on from there. But because uh, <laughs> the list, we don't have. We're already past time. <laughs> that, okay. What's that? So. Um, Uh, taking the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, right? Uh, I, now, we have a whole teaching in America called antinomianism. So most people don't even know that the apostles redefined the Lord's day as the first day of the week, what they called the Lord's day. That's why, you know, for 2,000 years, most Christians have taken seriously meeting on Sundays. But you know that Barna and Gallup and other organizations study trends in the church 
most Christians today go to, to church on Sundays uh, more than 22 and less than 30 times a year. And they, most, most uh, these studies actually, uh, actually break it down into people who consider themselves serious Christians versus people who are kind of more nominally Christian. And so and more serious Christians tend to attend the Lord's Day about 40 times a week, a year. <laughs> a week, a week. They're the they're the really serious Christians. That's pretty radical. So, so that means that means that means uh, we're keeping the Lord's Day eighty percent of the time. If we're the, that's what the more committed Christians in our culture do. And on and on. You could go on and on. The Lord's Day is based on six days you shall work. How many people have actually had weeks where they didn't work six days? Wait, did or did not? Did not work six days. <laughs> so, because the Lord's Day is actually based on the concept of completed work that you do six days a week. And on and on, on and on and on. I mean, taking the name of the Lord in vain is not just uh, using God's name as a curse word. Has anybody ever, don't show hands. <laughs> anybody ever done that? Of course you have. Some of you have. Probably most of us. But what's it more about? Judging unrighteously. No? Right, it's taking his name in a dishonorable fashion in the sense you call yourself by the name of the Lord, but you really don't live it. Misrepresentation. Misrepresentation. Has anybody ever had a, a Christian life that didn't measure up to calling yourself a Christian? Yeah. yeah. So let's pick it, we'll pick it up next week there because I don't want to go any longer, but uh, next week we'll... We won't review the first outline. We'll actually get into this second outline next week and hopefully get at least through the first two emphases that we had the first year, which took one semester. And we'll get through uh, loving God. And what the, the whole idea about the biblical idea of loving God, what I'm hoping to take you to is I'm hoping, so I, uh, this is kind of like when they say come back after the commercial because we're going to cover this on the news or whatever. So I'm giving you, what do they call it? A teaser. Here's the teaser for next week. What I hope to show you is that when, when you uh, really start thinking seriously about what God expects you to do in terms of loving God, it's impossible. I'm hoping to overwhelm you with like, oh my God, I don't have a hope or a prayer. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. And remember when the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, if it's like this, then what could, you know, like, and he says, with men, it's impossible. So, because the whole point of God's law is to actually take you to the need to, for grace. That's the whole point. Like, you're, like, nobody does this today, but the way you're supposed to lead people to Christ is, and that's the reason so many of our Christians are half converted, because you're supposed to use the law of God to show you that you really have messed up. You are the worst Christian I've ever met. <laughs> I'm the worst Christian I've ever met. And therefore, that helps us begin to be, that becomes our tutor to show us our need for grace. 
That's what Paul taught. That's what Jesus taught. And that's where we're going next week. I hope to overwhelm you with what it means to love God to the point where you go, oh, my God, like, might as well throw in the towel. And you throw your, what's that? And you, I want you to throw yourself on the mercy of the court and, and discover how to walk with God by grace. Amen.